Uh, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you at Bafra. Uh, I, I was just thinking, it seems, seems like a long time since I was here, but it was only a month ago. So, uh, But a lot's happened in that time, obviously. And uh, we do thank you for your prayers for us. Uh, it, it has been a challenging time at home. Um, and, yeah, Sal's death was somewhat unexpected. Well, we knew she was going to die. We knew that, that her time was extremely fragile. Uh, but we'd been so close to the, the gates of death so many times uh, and she kept bouncing back. But she had been really well. And so the last time I was here was Queen's birthday weekend and on the Monday of the Queen's birthday weekend, Sal had a little high tea to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. So she and the girls that work with her had made scones and cakes and all sorts of stuff. I was at the footy with my son, so I didn't get to share in it. But uh, that's how well she'd been. And then then uh, in the early hours of the following morning, she had one of her bleeds. Um, she had the, She's had this lung infection for quite a lot of years now, and, and it causes these terrible bleeding events and seizures. And anyway, that was the beginning of things. So 3 a.m. Tuesday morning and then early hours of Thursday morning, she left us. Well, yeah, she did actually. Um, I was meeting with Ray Patchett, as I always do on a Thursday morning. And I'd wondered whether I should have gone, but I thought, ah, oh, you, you got to keep going with things. But um, I hadn't even, even had a sip of my coffee, and Jenny rang and said, "Quick, come home now." And I knew it was bad. And uh, she probably had some sort of a a, a bleed on the brain, and. Um, and, and she actually died very peacefully, for which we're incredibly grateful, because we'd been led to expect that her passing would be very ugly, and it wasn't. So we, we're grateful. But yeah, look, it's been a difficult time. Um, Sally has been Jenny's primary focus for 15 years, and uh, and now the house is very quiet and empty. And uh, Jenny will come to church at Mafra one day. Um, she promises, and I'm looking forward to that. I've told her how often, I've told her many times she'll like it down there, they're good people. Um, and she says, I will come, but um, just at the moment she's, yeah. Uh, the day after Sal died, Jenny and I went shopping for the first time in five years. We, we, we hadn't even been up the street in Druin uh, together, so it, it's just taking a lot of getting used to. So we do thank you for your prayers, um, and uh, we, I would. Thank, thank you if you would keep praying for us. So look, anyway, enough of me. Uh, let's turn to God's word. We, we, we're continuing our series on Isaiah. I had Ricky read that passage earlier because it's actually a passage which where the Apostle Paul is related. Look, he's actually using the passage that we're looking at today to show how it applies to Christians, which is an important thing for us to do. Um, so let's so let's pray, and then we'll we'll read uh, Isaiah fifty. Uh, loving heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, we thank you that you are a speaking God, and we thank you for the Lord Jesus who uh, who listened to your word and took it to heart, and who passed it on to us. And so we pray that you would help us to be active listeners today, and people who uh, agree with your word and who obey it. So please cause this to to take root in our hearts, uh, transform us by your word and equip us to serve you faithfully. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we'll read the chapter in a little while, but Isaiah 50 is where we're up to. We're starting at verse 4. But one of the challenges of reading a book as long as Isaiah, let alone preaching it, is trying to hold the whole thing together. Have you ever read a book where you can't, after a little while, you think, who is that person? Uh, 
I used to read books with Sal at night and some are easier to read than others but there was one particular book we were reading and after about a week of reading it I said are you getting anything out of this because I can't there was just too many names and I'd forgotten who they were and and the a book like Isaiah is a long book uh, and it's a complicated book and so to read it is difficult but to preach it is pretty hard because we only get a go at it once a week and we're trying to hold this whole thing together so just a little bit of a revision chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah Isaiah was raised up by God to address a situation among God's people in Jerusalem where they were being anything but obedient to God. Now, God had said to them, if you want to live in the land, you need to live by my law. Now, that's fair enough, isn't it? And they all said, when God gave them the law, they all said, yeah, we'll do that. Well, anyway, they got into the land and over centuries, they preferred the gods of the nations around them. But then their kings became steadily more corrupt and they loved wealth, they loved luxury. And the wealthy people in Jerusalem loved the same things too. So the poor were suffering and the rich were getting richer. And God said, you can't do this. And so he raised up prophets like Isaiah to speak to the people to say, the things that God once said are still true. Don't mistake God's patience for neglect. And so the people were living any old how. They thought they were pretty religious, but God says their hearts are far from me. So Isaiah had a difficult job to do. And so chapters 1 to 39, he's, he's addressing the situation in Jerusalem and he's warning them that if they don't straighten up, they're going to be conquered by a foreign power and taken into exile. Now, late in that section, 1 to 39, we realise that Babylon, the empire of Babylon, is going to be the one that conquers Jerusalem and ruins it and takes the people into exile. Remember where Israel's story began? They were in Egypt as slaves. God rescued them in what we call the Exodus. Well, he also said, if you disobey me, I'm going to take you out of the land. And that's called the exile. Well, anyway, chapters 40 to 55, which we're concentrating on now, and next year we'll come back and have a look at 56 to 66. But chapters 40 to 55 were written about 150 years before they would become true or they're always true but Isaiah is looking ahead to a day when the people of God are going to need these words because they will be in exile and so Isaiah is looking ahead and he's saying when you're in Babylon you'll need to know these things and what they'll need to know is that God hasn't forgotten them what they'll need to know is that even though they are a conquered people God's purposes for them have not yet been exhausted God has purposes but there's a definite time period during which they're going to be in Babylon and they need to get back to God because the problems that caused them to be exiled out of Jerusalem need to be dealt with and so the big question is how can sinful people live with a holy God because God is promising in these chapters he's going to bring them out of Babylon in a new exodus God's going to do another exodus well anyway the people had the habit of uh, of constantly questioning God and and asking can God really do it well four times in these chapters between chapters 42 and up to chapter 53 four times we read about a person who becomes known as the servant 
So the first of the, the, the descriptions of the servant, or the first time that the servant speaks, is in chapter 42. Then again in chapter 49. Now in chapter 50. And then the most famous servant passage is in chapter 52 into chapter 53. And so one of the things about reading Isaiah is you've got to ask, who's speaking here? Sometimes it's very clear that it's Yahweh, the Lord, speaking. Sometimes it's the prophet. Sometimes it's the people. But on four occasions, this rather curious figure called the servant speaks. And so we're going to be looking at one of these servant passages today. But how is Yahweh going to restore his sinful people? What measures will he take? Well, clearly, when you look at the servant passages, Yahweh is going to use an individual, a person who is so committed to living the way of God that God will use him to be the instrument for bringing his people out of bondage in Babylon and back to the land. And that's the servant. The servant is God's representative. He's God's proxy. Now we know about ambassadors, don't we? And so an ambassador works for one country while living in another country. So Australia has ambassadors to all the countries of the world that we have anything to do with. And they speak on behalf of Australia in that country. The servant is like God's ambassador. He's everything that Israel should have been but wasn't. Why did God choose Israel? He chose them because he loved them, but he chose them because Israel was to be his representative people. They were to be the people on earth that showed everybody else who was watching, this is what it looks like to be a people in whom God is alive, God is living. That's what Israel was to to be. Did they do it very well? Of course not, because they became just like the nations they were supposed to be witnessing to. But the job of Israel, you can read it in Exodus 19, was to be a holy people and a priestly people. They were meant to show the world this is what it looks like when God is living with you. The servant becomes everything that Israel was not. He's God's representative. He's God's light. And he becomes God's salvation. So, Isaiah 50, but just cast your mind back, your eyes back to Isaiah 49 verse 14. Isaiah 49 verse 14. Zion, which is another way of saying Jerusalem or the people of God living there, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. That's pretty strong words, isn't it? Do you ever feel that God's forgotten you? You don't have to nod and make it public, but I think, I think sometimes we do. And so if, you, if ever you've wondered if God's forgotten you, then you need to listen hard today, right? Uh, because there are times in life when we do become weary and we wonder, but God has an answer. So go down into chapter 50 and have a look at verse 2. God replies to this challenge with a series of questions and one of them is this. Verse 2, why when I came... Was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? In other words, why weren't you listening? Confidence in God, confidence to face the perils of life comes from listening and learning. 
And so he goes on. He says, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? What he's asking there is he says, do you believe that I'd once rescued your forebears out of Egypt by the Exodus? That's what he's asking. He says, don't you think I can do it again? Is my arm shortened? Have I no power to redeem? Well, then we get to verse 4. So Isaiah 50, verse 4. We've just seen a little bit of background to it. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So this is the third of what we call the servant songs. And, uh, and the servant is this individual who listens to God. Now, our reading is in two sections. There's, and if you've got the, the bulletin there, we, I've got an outline there, and which I hope will help, might help, but keep your Bible open and maybe have a look at that as well. But the first five verses, verses four to nine, they're this song, because this is Hebrew poetry, about the servant. We know it's about the servant because we're told that in verse 10. We're told in verse 10 because verses 10 and 11 are like a commentary on the song. They're applying that to the people who read and hear these words, which means us. So the the challenge of verses 10 and 11 is what are we going to do with the declaration that the servant makes in verses 4 to 9. Now, in verses 4 to 9, you'll see repeated the Lord God four times. Can you see that? And so they're the little sections of each of, of the declaration of the servant here. Four times we read about the sovereign Lord, Yahweh. So verses four to nine divides into these four sections. The first of them shows us that the servant is a model learner. In other words, he's a disciple. Because a disciple is someone who hears and who obeys. A disciple is someone who goes to a teacher, takes on board the teaching 
and then wants to pass it on to others. And that's exactly what the servant does. So have a look at verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Yahweh's already said to the people of Zion, is there anybody listening? And now the servant says, yes, I am. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. In other words, when he speaks, he's speaking with a mind and a heart full of instruction that he's received from God. That's good instruction because it's true. But he doesn't just want to keep this teaching to himself. He wants to pass it on. Because look at the second part of verse 4, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. He wants to help people who are struggling under the weight of life. Has life ever weighed you down? You'd be a rare person if it didn't. Every one of us will be challenged in various ways. Right now, I've no doubt that some of you are facing deep perplexities, challenges, and you wonder how we're going to get through it. If you ever find yourself getting weary of life, weighed down by it, these words are for you. Because there is one who's been taught by God who has a word to pass on to you. He doesn't want to keep this to himself. He wants to pass it on. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Now that's just what Yahweh does. Remember chapter 40? Uh, Back in chapter 40, we're told that God doesn't grow faint or weary. He gives power to the weary. Remember that? So this servant has a ministry which is just like God's. Wow, that's a special person. I wonder who it can be. He goes on. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So this is the servant speaking and he's testifying. He's saying, this has been my experience of God. I've opened my ear to receive the teaching. I'm going to sustain the weary with the teaching I've received. How does he receive it? Morning by morning. Yahweh, the Lord, awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So a disciple is someone who goes expectantly, regularly and in a disciplined way to receive the teaching of God. Now I want to stop a moment here and just draw back a little from Isaiah and pass on a word of recommendation and encouragement. Right? Are you a person that listens to God morning by morning? Really? If your only input from the Bible is weekly at church then don't be surprised if life's pressures weigh you down in a way that you'll wonder if you can cope with. I want to tell you that when life is at its pointiest and its harshest and its most perplexing, to have a mind and a heart filled with God's word which comes through patiently, regularly and in a disciplined way, waking in the morning and hearing from God, it works. It works. And there's no substitute for just doing it. I was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago. He's a a retired dairy farmer. And he's a man who told me that his daily habit has been to read the Bible. He says, uh, I read as much of it as I can. So he doesn't follow a pattern like the one I laid out, the fold-out guide to reading the Bible. He just reads and, uh, and he reads... As much as he can until he thinks, well, that's, that's a good section to have read today. He says, I start in Genesis and I work my way through to Revelation and when I get to Revelation, I start again. 
Well, I was talking to him about dairy farming the other day, and uh, he's retired dairy farmer now. I said, what, what time did you start milking? He said, well, I got up at three, three in the morning, because he said I had to read my Bible first. We were talking about cows, but he wanted to talk about the Bible. So he was in the shed by four, but he was in the Word by three. Now, that's a challenge to me, because I never get up at three o'clock. But when I talk to people about Bible reading, you know, the first thing that they usually say, I'd like to, but I haven't got time. Well, my mate Rick made time, three in the morning. He had to milk the cows, but he was in the word before. Now, he's a man who's encountered many difficulties in life, but his life's held together because the word is part of the fabric of who he is. Now the servant sets us a great example here. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So here's the first challenge for us today. Are you one who is regularly having your ear awakened by God so he can teach you from his word? Because you need it. We've got an incredible resource. The Bible is, we've got it, we can take it home with us. Most people who have trusted Jesus, who have lived for him and followed him all these years, most people have had to make do without a Bible. And in fact, around the world, there's still lots and lots of Christians who don't own their own Bible. We have an incredible privilege. And Jesus says, to those who much has been given, much will be required. One day, I have a feeling that Christians like us will be held to account by God who gave us the gift of our own Bible... And he'll say, well, why didn't you read it? Why is it that Western Christianity is so lax, so lacking in power, so ineffective? It's because we've abandoned the word. We say we believe it, but our lives prove we don't because we simply don't read it. That's, that's my challenge. I want to tell you that reading the word makes a difference. So C.S. Lewis, who has something useful to say about most things, he says this, Since our moods fluctuate, we must make sure our faith rests on something solid, not on how we feel or our beliefs will dither to and fro, dependent on the weather and the state of our digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith by holding some of its main doctrines before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious readings and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. If you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. In other words, how many people have been persuaded that it's just not true? But then he answers his own question. He says, do not most people simply drift away? Now, in all the years that I've been pastoring churches, my answer is yes, C.S. Lewis, you are spot on. Most people just drift away. They don't go to church one week and then they don't go the second week and they notice that the sky didn't fall in on them so they think, oh, I got away with it. And then the third week they're getting used to it and then the fourth week they think, well if I go now people will ask where I've been. So the fifth week they decide to stay away. And just little by little 
a new habit forms. Well, we don't go to church because we think God's going to get cross with us and beat us up and the sky will fall in. We go to church because we need to. And actually, I come to church because I love to. I like being with you. It does me good. Did you know that? And it does you good to be here too. Because you see, the world will disciple you. Right? If you only come to church for an hour and a half each week, the rest of the week, the world is getting at you. Through the TV, through the internet, through the books you read, the magazines, but through your conversations and the things that people assume. You're being discipled by the world. Well, you're going to be discipled by the world or you're going to learn from God. Because you see, we need to read the world through the lens of the word. We really do. It's just that important. Now I can tell you, uh, if you don't mind a little word of personal testimony, trying to make sense of all that's happened over the last 15 years, I don't think I could have done it, except that I've been reading the Bible a long time and it gives me a framework. And those words that Ricky read out from Romans 8 where, where, where Paul says, Will not he who did not spare his own son freely with him give us all things? And it occurred to me one day because somebody said, How can this be happening to you? You're a pastor. I thought, well, that's stupid. Why shouldn't it happen to me? You know, but it occurred to me if God did nothing else for me but give me Jesus, wouldn't that be enough? wouldn't it? God gives his son to bleed and die on a cross to save a sinner like me so I can enjoy the privilege of eternal life. Isn't that enough? I think it is. But does he give us more? Yes. Because he promises to come alongside and help. Now this servant is a disciple. He's someone who who says morning by morning Yahweh awakens my ear to hear. And there's a challenge there for me and there is for you too. Because I've got to confess, I don't find reading the Bible every morning easy. And there's some days when I'd probably rather not. But then I tell myself, no, I need to. Discipline's a good thing, did you know that? We often think about discipline and we think of it in terms of punishment. That's not it at all. Discipline just means getting into a good routine. Getting into good habits. Discipline means living the life of a disciple. Um, You know, I like sport. There's only two sports I really care about, cricket and football. The rest of them I couldn't be bothered with, really. But but, uh, you can learn things from from sport. Uh, Some years ago, uh, the Australian cricket team was playing in New Zealand and Michael Clark was one of Australia's star batsmen and he had personal problems that he had to come back to Australia to deal with. And so he took a week off from touring with the Australian side and he came back and the... The people who write about cricket were wondering, should he get his spot in the test team back? Would he be fit to play? Would he be able to hold his his spot in the team? And so he came back into the team without any practice, went straight into the team and made 150. And so after the game, he was asked, how was it? And he said, well, the first 50 was pretty scratchy because I haven't had a hit for a week. I thought, wow. So a cricketer as gifted as Michael Clark notices the difference when he doesn't practice every day. What about us? 
That's discipline. And so the first 50 was pretty scratchy, he said. How long was it since you started the day with reading the Bible? You need to. You, you own one. Start with a little bit at first and get longer. But whatever you do, read it systematically. Read, read from the start of the book to the end. Don't just take a verse here and a verse there, please, because it'll never make sense. But you need to be discipled by God, not by the world. Right. That was a long point. Verse 5. I had to say it because, look, I just want to tell you, we need to be people of the word. We just have to. Verses 5 and 6. The servant is a model not just of learning but of obedience. He doesn't just learn, he obeys what he learns. So the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So, yes, Yahweh's opened his ears and, uh, and he wants to obey the things that he's been taught. Now, what is the opposite of obedience? It's rebellion. Now, I've been a teacher for many years and I can tell you now that in just about every class I ever taught of any size, you could, you could count on almost a fixed percentage of kids in there being rebellious. And when I was a casual teacher working around from school to school, I used to go in and look around and think, yep, yep, yep. You can see it in their face. And there's a fixed percentage of people who, when you try to teach, will resist it. And it happens in churches too. Because I wonder if those resistant ones in class bring their resistance into church. Right? We've all of us got to reckon with this. We're sinful people. I like my own way. Have I ever told you this one? But I, I've actually worked out the secret to church harmony. Did you know that? I am going to write a book about it. But I know how to fix every problem in church. Agree with me. <laughs> And it'll all, be, it'll all work. Right? But the trouble is you want me to agree with you. So how do we work it out? Right? We all of us need to reckon that we have the potential for rebellion and for just getting, doing things our way. But the, 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 the servant that we're reading of here is someone who has heard and he has not rebelled. He hasn't turned backward. He's not defiant against God's word. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now Israel has been punished for its disobedience. The servant suffers because he's obedient, but it doesn't put him off. Now he says, I've been struck. That's the punishment for a crime. He's treated like a criminal. He's been mocked and he's been spat at. They're signs of disrespect. It's no, no fun being spat at, is it? I used to be an, a footy umpire for a while and I had a kid underage spat at me one day to tell me what he thought of a decision. It's, the servant's been spat at. But the big one, is, he says, they pulled out my beard. But he actually gave his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard. Fascinating story in 2 Samuel 10. Uh, read it when you get home. 2 Samuel 10, David sends representatives to a foreign king to console with him after the death of his father. But the king's princes say, David's just sending these people in as spies, send them home. So before they sent them home, they shaved off half their beard. It was a, a disgrace. So David said, well, before you come back and take your place in Jerusalem, hold up for a while in Jericho till your beards grow, because then you won't look like figures of shame. So to have your beard pulled out is even worse. And yet the servant says, I gave my face to those who pulled out the beard. 
So he's an object of ridicule and shame. Verse 7. He's a model not just of learning and of obedience, but of confidence. So with all of that nasty background, verse 7, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now why won't he be disgraced and shamed? Verse 7, the Lord God, Yahweh, helps me. So he knows he's been helped in the past and so that gives him confidence for the future. Have you ever been helped by God? Can you think back to a time where you're sure you were able to do something that you didn't think you could do because God was your helper? Can you think back to that? Um, you've, You've helped me, did you know that? Because the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, you also must help me by your prayers. If you've been praying for Jenny and me, you have been helping. And I think we have been helped. I I can feel it. God does help his people and one of the ways he does that is through the prayers of others. But because the servant looks back to the times when Yahweh's helped him in the past, that gives him confidence for the future. And he says, therefore I've set my face like flint. Now what does that mean? What that means is he is not going to run out when the trouble gets fierce. To set your face like flint, that's a saying which comes up a number of times in the prophets. So you can read it in Jeremiah, you can read it in Ezekiel or words like it. What it means is trouble's coming, but I'm not going to run. I'm going to go through it. Why? Because Yahweh will help me. And so because of all that he's learnt from God in the past... He says, I'm going to face up to a terrifying future with a face set like flint because I know God will help me again. So this servant is a model of learning and of obedience and of confidence. But there's something interesting here because verse 6 is full of shameful treatment. He says, I've given my face to those who pull out the beard. He says, I've been mocked and spat at. I've been beaten. That's shameful. And he says in verse uh, 7... He says, I know that I shall not be put to shame. And there's a lesson there for us as well. Because while you might be shamed in this life, the greatest shame will come on the day when your deeds are weighed, on the day of judgment. The greatest shame will be to hear that God says, I'm ashamed of you. But the servant gives us the model. Face up to difficulties with a face set like flint, confident that God will help. Don't shirk it. Don't deny Jesus. Kids at school, if, 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 they, if they laugh at you for believing in Jesus, don't hit back, don't, don't be nasty, but don't stop believing in Jesus. Mums and dads, older people, don't stop believing in Jesus. Because if we, if we deny him on earth, he'll deny us in heaven. That's the shame that the servant's talking about here. He's, he has been treated shamefully, but the real shame that we need to fear is the shame of God on the day when he says, I never knew you. Verses 8 and 9, the servant's a model learner. He's an obedient disciple. He's confident. And he's a model of victory. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. 
So this is like a court setting again and the servant saying, if my opponents and I are made to stand in court together, their case will collapse. They won't have anything against me. Why? Because Yahweh is my helper. He'll be vindicated. He'll be shown that he's in the right. He'll be declared guiltless, even though he's suffered. But think about this. Who are his opponents? Gods. We've already seen earlier on in this section that the gods of the nations are idols. Human inventions. They're powerless. People. Well, Dave read earlier from Psalm 118, verse 6 of Psalm 118 says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Who are you scared of? Who are you scared of? What's the worst they can do? The worst they can do is kill you. But far worse is to meet God on judgment day and have him say, I'm ashamed of you. So the servant is so sure that God's with him that no case against him is going to stand. No one can declare him guilty. But look at the second part of verse 9. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. In other words, to oppose the servant is to invite God's wrath. So the servant is a disciple because he's got an obedient ear. He doesn't just take it to himself, he wants to pass it on. He wants to learn and and help others to withstand the pressures of life. But he's a model for us also of costly obedience. And he's a model of someone who's confident in God's activity in the past and therefore of God's victory in the future. Does that sound like anyone we know? The New Testament consistently identifies Jesus as being the servant. This is a prefiguring of our Lord Jesus. Now, we we had to deal with it slowly and systematically because that way we get something of the flavour of who Jesus is to us and who he is for us. Jesus was someone who taught others with God's authority. He was someone uh, where when people obeyed him, they're obeying God. Jesus was someone who obeyed God's will even to the point of enduring terrible suffering. Jesus was someone who evidenced real confidence in God's plans and because of that he was, we, he was helped to face great hardships. Jesus is someone who the resurrection has vindicated as being someone without guilt. Jesus is someone who to oppose is to oppose God. Now it's interesting, in Luke chapter 9, Luke tells the story of Jesus and he has him ministering in Galilee but in Luke chapter 9 there's a real turning point. And Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke is saying, Jesus is the servant. With a face set like flint, staring adversity in the face, not shirking it, but going through it. And if Jesus didn't go through it, we'd be lost. But the servant calls for his followers to be like him. And so verses 10 to 11, as the reading finishes, there's a challenge. There's only two ways to live, the way of verse 10 or the way of verse 11. Verse 10 is the light of faith. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? How do you know that you're one of God's people? You'll listen to his servant. You'll obey the one who has listened to God. Jesus let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord 
and rely on his God. So the servant of Isaiah 50, when we learn from him, we can be confident that we'll be accepted by God because the servant brings God's God's message. And those in the second part of verse 10 who don't currently share that relationship are called to turn. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord. How do you know you're trusting in the name of the Lord? When you listen to the teaching of the one he's taught, the servant. But verse 11. Behold, all who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. That's an ancient Hebrew way of saying, I did it my way. I used to do funerals a lot. Um, When I was studying, I worked for a funeral company. And uh, it's really interesting to see how people want to have their lives celebrated. And I read read an article once that said the number one song for men at funerals was Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. Not for women. Didn't even make the top ten. They liked stuff like Wind Beneath My Wings, right? If you want I did it my way at your funeral, I want no part in your funeral. (laughs) There's only one way to do life and that's his way. And so these people who kindle their own fire, who walk in the light of their own torch, the result for them is terrible. They're going to lie down in torment. There's a terrible price to pay for people who reject the teaching of the servant. Can you see that? I want to finish by looking at Romans 8. Just turn quickly over to Romans 8. Because you see, what Paul's doing here, and it's great, I love what you shared before, Ricky, it's an extraordinary passage, Romans 8. It's, it's, the whole Bible's great, but if you had to have a top 10, Romans 8 would be in it, Right? an extraordinary passage but Paul is saying here what he wants Christians to know is these are the benefits that flow to you and to me through trusting Jesus and what he does is he applies the language of the servant song from Isaiah 50 to show you the privileges that you currently enjoy if you've come to faith in Jesus right so what does he say Romans 8 verse 31 if God is for us who can be against us that's just what the servant asked Who's going to show me my faults? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If you've trusted Jesus, there's nothing that can be said against you because Jesus has paid your price and God's declared you not guilty. That's what justifies mean. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn you on the day when God judges the world? Who's going to condemn you if if you've trusted Jesus? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You see, all of these privileges come to people who have decided that Jesus is the servant of Yahweh, the one who had his ear opened morning by morning and was taught by Yahweh so he could teach others. Have you accepted the teaching of Jesus? Not just doing life by the Beatitudes but the teaching of Jesus says I am the way and the truth and the life there's no other way to eternal life but Jesus he laid down his life and poured out his blood so that your sins could be forgiven have you trusted him have you turned from your old sinful ways or are you still singing I did it my way 
Because if you have turned to Jesus, then these questions Paul poses in the language of the servant to reassure you that nothing can keep you from the love of God. And so look how he finishes, verse 37. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Paul wants to recommend the benefits of trusting Jesus, he uses the language of the servant to do so. The one who listened to God, who obeyed him so he could teach others to do exactly the same. Is that you? Is that me? Because you see, to obey God's servant Jesus Christ is to know God, to be forgiven by God, to be able to look ahead to the future and know that you'll be welcomed by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the riches of your word and we pray that you would help us to take these things to heart today. Help us. We we ask that tomorrow morning you would waken our ears. We pray that we would um, make sure that we spend time with you and your word each day so that we can be people who receive your word and be taught by it and then live it out. We pray that you would help us like Jesus, your servant's son, to be people who obey your word Uh, to become confident in your saving and keeping power and who one day will, will find complete victory because we've trusted in him. So we ask that you would help us in all these things. And, and we pray that you would help us uh, to, to live in the light of, of your word, not in the tortures we light for ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.